Welcome to Something Like It Pop, Broadway World's pop culture podcast. I am Broadway World and Broadway Radio's Matt Tiamanini, and as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World's Jennifer McHugh. Happy Labor Day, Jen. Any big plans for the holiday? Um, I'm going to stay inside and try not to melt. Fair, fair. I think there's a little bit of a heat wave going on in Southern California right now. Just a little bit. Yesterday it got up to 114. Right now it is 10 a.m. Pacific time and it's 97 degrees. 97 degrees. I mean, if it was 98 degrees, that would be even... Don't. (laughs) Don't. Super hot. Don't. Uh, Speaking of which, Nick Lachey is apparently going to be on Dancing with the Stars this season. Are you going to tune in for that? Uh, I think I would tune in for Jordan Fisher first. Okay, he will be there. Nice Hamilton segue, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, you can follow Jen on Twitter at EponineQ. That's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q. And you can follow me at B-W-W-M-A-T-T. You can follow the show on Twitter at S-L-I-P Podcast. And Jen, since we are recording on September 2nd, I think it is safe to say that this is Sound Like It Pops, episode 4.1, our fourth season premiere. We've started recording episodes Back in September of 2015, we did a short little mini-season to kind of get the kinks worked out in the fall of 2015. Then we started our official season two that went out on iTunes and Stitcher and all those places in January of 2016. So now we are beginning season four of Some Like It Pop. So to celebrate, we're going to spend nearly this entire episode talking about the thing that you love most in the world. Hamilton, an American musical. We will start with the show's four-month tour stop at the Hollywood Pantages Theater, then the fact that I actually have tickets to see the show at Broadway's Richard Rogers Theater, then we will transition into the side project of one of Hamilton's Tony-nominated stars, and maybe more side projects, including Jordan Fisher on Dancing with the Stars, and maybe David Diggs' new sitcom that he's producing, and then finally, per the usual, we will close the episode with a little show-and-tell. So, Jen... Let's just get into this. Uh, I I think if we're going to discuss Hamilton, I think it's safe to assume that anybody listening to this podcast or anyone who hasn't been living under a rock for the past two or three years knows plenty about the show. But just in case people are new to us here at Some Like It Pop, can you briefly explain how you fell in love with the musical and the lengths to which it has and will take you? Um, Well, you had sent me the original recording before it came out because those are some of the perks we get um but it was literally just like the day before it came out and I didn't have time to listen to it and you kept asking me like did you listen to it did you listen to it I'm like no I didn't listen to it so I let my roommate listen to it and he's like you seriously need to listen to this because it's it's pretty great so I put it on my drive to work and um it was one of those things where like the first three songs you're like what is happening? Like, it's just so completely different. And, you know, and by the time you get to my shot or, you know, what Lynn refers to as the I want song, you're just like, I, first of all, the story, I mean, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here, but the story of Alexander Hamilton is fascinating. That alone, you know, inspired him to write this. Uh, It's never talked about. And this man is such an important part of this country. And all we know is that he was on a, a currency and he was shot by Aaron Burr, which we know from a Got Milk commercial. Aaron so, <laughs> so just to learn all about him and, you know, and Lynn's major thing is to tell the story of America then, make it look like America now. So I just fell in love with it right from the beginning. 
and then started listening to other Hamilcast or to the <laughs> well, shout out to the Hamilcast, to other uh, podcasts about it, kind of digging in deep and people interviewing cast members and people interviewing Lynn and the creators and hearing all the different little things that went into it. Um, it's just not one of those surprise little hits like a sleeper. It was thoroughly researched and developed and every single mo- movement in choreography, every single stage direction, every single lighting cue was was very well thought out. And that's not a lot very different from any other musical, but um, I think it's definitely earned the hype that it gets. And I did hear that a lot from the crowd at the Pantages where I was, that people were like, I'm just so surprised it lives up to this hype. You know, it's never someone like, well, I don't see what the big deal is and everyone talks about it too much. It was always like, I'm so happy that it lived up to its <laughs> reputation. Yeah, and we'll get to uh, we'll get to the show itself because I know you have some strong feelings about the production you saw in Los Angeles. But just real quick, you have seen the show in New York on Broadway. Um, was that the original cast uh, that you saw? Yes. Okay, you saw the original cast. You've now seen the tour cast. You, I think, have tickets to see the London cast. Correct. I do. Okay, and that, but that's not for like another year, right? That is in June of 2018. June 2018. Okay. You I also have tickets for another performance here in September. Cool. Yes. Um, so plenty of, uh, of tickets to see the shows. You've obviously read the book. You've seen the documentary. You listen to all the podcasts. You also got some ink, right? I may have a tattoo on my arm. Yes. <laughs> I uh, tattooed a lyric from Wait For It on my arm. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk about that in a second because... Jen, I remember, like you talked about, we I, I sent you the, the cast album really early, and as soon as it was announced that the Hamilton tour would be having a long stay in San Francisco, followed by a long stay in Los Angeles, you decided to become a subscriber to the Pantages Theater, because even though it was still more than a season away, it was the only way to assure that you would be able to get tickets to see Hamilton. Um, so you've been looking forward to this for quite a while, but before you actually got to see the show... You went to a panel with a few special people connected with the musical, right? Was that uh, – well, first off, who, who was on this panel and what was it all about? Um, LA Times hosted the panel on the Monday before the premiere, so they were dark that night because Hamilton does double Saturdays and double Sundays instead of double Wednesdays and Saturdays. So they're dark on Mondays as usual, and they held this panel on the Hamilton set, and it was then LA Times reporter interviewing – Director Tommy Kale, orchestrationist slash musical director um, Alex Lackamore, and choreographer Andy Blankenbuehler. And uh, how nerdy and geeked out were you? Oh, I was a total dork. But <laughs> these guys are so – they're just likable. And you can tell that they're good collaborators and they play off each other. They have inside jokes, but they're also not – they don't give off an exclusive vibe. And not one of them gives off the um, the vibe that, like, we are very good at what we do and, you know, like, this is beneath – they're so humble and down to earth and none of them can believe that this is going on still. They're still overwhelmed at fans being obsessed with them and knowing everything about them. And um, they told some really good behind-the-scenes the stories about – the original concept, the original development. And, you know, even Lynn, when he brought it to them, like he kept bringing them pieces for this, you know, mythical mixtape. And finally, Alex and Tommy were like, you do realize this is a show, right? Like we have to start thinking of it that way. (laughs) 
So just the way they work together and they talk about sitting around the kitchen table and Lynn saying, I want this to happen. And then Alex is pounding away on the keyboard. And then Tommy's like, oh, I can see that. That with it. It's just they're four brains that work as one. They're an amazing team. And just to hear them talk about each other and um, just with 100% admiration and respect, it was just really inspiring. It was an inspiring evening. Well, and it's what's so neat about it is that these guys all are known as a collective. They're a group. They've worked on uh, in the Heights. A lot of them worked on Bring It On together, and they've all obviously worked on Hamilton together. But they all have individual careers. The three of these guys have done things on their own and been extremely successful. Alice Lacamoire was the assistant orchestrator and musical director for a little show called Wicked when it debuted on Broadway. And he just won a Tony for orchestrating Dear Evan Hansen. Andy Blankenbuehler is a Tony winning. He was the director and the choreographer for Bandstand on Broadway, won the Tony for choreography this past year. Um, Tommy Kale is directing shows on Broadway, off Broadway, he directed Grease Live. He's doing all these different things. So he's they're all having success separately, but it still seems like they they get so much joy out of working together and the friendship and the like you said the camaraderie that comes with working as this unit because they seem to have some sort of shorthand where they just get each other. And I think that's really special and it's something that's not unique necessarily to theater because Every art form is in some way or another a collaboration, but I think it's unique to theater in the fact that you can completely start from the ground up with something with a group of people and bring it to life differently than you would in a movie or TV because that usually starts with one person coming up with an idea. And even though Lynn came up with this, it was, it couldn't, it was, they, they were all instrumental in making it what it is today. Well, also they have um, this thing where they, they said they leave their egos at the door. So if Lynn walks in and says, I want to do this uh, rap about John Adams, you know, Alex can turn to him and say, that's really great. I don't think it's necessary to drive the plot forward. And Lynn doesn't throw a tantrum and say, what are you talking about? He's like, trusts him and trusts an outsider view to, you know, check him and vice versa. If Alex writes an orchestration, you know, Andy can turn to him and say, well, that doesn't make sense with the song. You know, like there's just no ego. They trust each other implicitly so that if someone else says something to them, it's not an insult or a degradation on their work. It's a here's what's best for the show. And they just take it in stride. And I thought that was a very good lesson for everyone who's trying to collaborate because it is not easy. And it is especially not easy to work with people that you don't really like. So <laughs> I appreciate them. Um, I will tell one story that they told us was when they were getting close to opening at the public, they were starting to, you know, do the final run throughs and there was just something missing in the song one last time. And um, towards the end of it, Lynn was kind of in the audience watching it and they were um, rehearsing it. And Alex started playing the melody, George Washington's coming home underneath it. And Lynn just looked at him and pounded on the piano and screamed, yes. And that's what finished the song for him. Like it just was that idea that sprang to life that brought the song together for him. And I love those moments. I'd get chills and cry and be the nerd that I like to be. Uh, were you like, how did you get tickets to this? Was this just a first come first serve by ticket thing? Or was it some sort of VIP super secret Hamill fan exclusive list that you happen to be on? It was, uh, they offered it to the season ticket holders and then they opened it up to the public and then you had an option of uh, general admission or VIP and we bought VIP because I have a tattoo on my arm and that included, um, afterwards a meet and greet with them. So I got to meet them afterwards 
They were lovely, lovely, wonderful people. And they liked my tattoo and they joked around about it. And I said to Alex Lacamoire, you have the best posture I've ever seen because he's such a pianist. He was sitting on the stage and his back is perfectly straight. I couldn't stop staring at his posture. I'm like, that's such a musician right there. And then I, we took a picture and then I said to Andy, I was like, you're one of my heroes. And I walked away and Tommy Kale grabbed my arm and said, uh, hello. So they're just really funny guys. (laughs) And I was overwhelmed that I got to meet them. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got, uh, you had some pictures on the, on the Instagram, um, that, uh, was that you seemed just to be absolutely beaming with excitement, uh, to be taking a picture with all of them. I was, they were genuinely great guys. It was a great night. Awesome. So that takes us to the show itself. Now, Jen, you have, like we said, seen it on Broadway. You have been looking forward to this experience for a long time to be able to see it in Southern California. Let's go through the cast real quick. As Alexander Hamilton, uh, Michael Luwaye is playing uh, the lead role. Joshua Henry, who originated the role of Aaron Burr in Chicago and actually in the original Vassar workshop did Hercules Mulligan, James Madison, and King George III. So he's been with the show for a long time. He's playing Aaron Burr. Soleil Pfeiffer is Eliza. Emily Raver-Lampman is Angelica. Uh, Jordan Donica is uh, the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson. Rory O'Malley is King George III. Amber Iman is Peggy and Mariah Reynolds. So this is a, a mostly a new cast. Most uh, A couple of them have done it uh, in New York or wherever else. Um, uh, Joshua Henry, obviously, like I said, Michael Luwaye um, was on Broadway as well for a little bit of a run. But for the most part, it's a new group. They obviously did it for four months in San Francisco. But it is a, you know, you get a new cast. It's a different experience. So for you, having seen it more than a year ago in New York, having had all this excitement and ramp up and, and anticipation to see it at the Pantages, how did it live up to expectations? I know it. you said a lot of the people in the audience thought it lived up to expectations. But what about you, a super Hamill fan? Did it meet your expectations of what the show would be? Well, you know, that's not a yes or no question. <laughs> Um, All right. First of all, the energy in the theater is palpable. Like you walk in and it's like you're getting ready for a rock concert. People are cheering. There are people in cosplay. There are uh, people are singing the lyrics. Like it is insane. It is like literally like Bruce Springsteen's in town. So uh, also I need to mention that the Richard Rogers, it's it's pretty small. And the Pantages, I think Tommy Kale said was almost three times the size. Wow. So that is a big adjustment for not only sound, because the sound in the Pantages is notoriously bad. So they had to work with sound. They had to work with staging. They had to work with facial expressions because you're not playing to someone who's sitting right up in your face. I mean, it's like three times the size. So they had to really rework a lot for the Pantages. As for the cast, I broke it down into tiers (laughs) from four through one. So. I want to make make it clear that just because they're on the fourth tier on the bottom, nobody was bad. I think they just were my least favorites. They stood out the least to me. Um, so on tier number four were Jefferson and Lawrence. I think that both of these guys are very, very talented. I don't think they brought anything new to the roles. I think they were kind of doing impressions of David and Anthony Ramos. But I think with time, they're going to be really great. On tier number three, <laughs> we have... Mulligan, uh, Madison, Peggy, and Eliza. Mulligan, Madison fascinated me because he made James Madison interesting. I always think in the second act, Madison kind of fades into the ether, but he made him really entertaining. And I told him that afterwards, which we'll get to. Peggy, 
she made Peggy really funny and, and she got a big laugh when she turned around and said, and Peggy, like this petulant <laughs> little sister. And then she comes out as Mariah and she's this sultry. I was just, after the Peggy thing, she had this like whiny little voice and she turned around as Mariah Reynolds. And I was like, oh, the lady behind me went, oh, shit. And I was like, yeah, like, where did that voice come from? <laughs> and Eliza, when she started helpless, I was like, oh, she's, I don't know about her. But I don't think her strong point is upbeat songs because she destroyed Burn, like weeping and chills and everything. So um, I heard an interview with Rory O'Malley and they said that she's six weeks out of college. You know how you get uh, Mm -hmm. the lead role in Hamilton when you're six weeks out of college? Yeah. She also did. um, She played Maria in the Hollywood Bowl opposite Jeremy Jordan in West Side Story, like right before she got this, too. So she's one of these people that was like. Okay, we know she's going to be special. She's getting all these jobs while in school. So you know that she's got a bright, bright future ahead of her. Right. And I feel like her and Jefferson and Lawrence are all like very green, but they're going to be like kids to watch. Then on tier two, I put the king because Rory is just, and I just heard an uh, interview with him and he's like the oldest person in the cast and he's horrified by that. And he made everyone show them his driver's license just to verify that that was true. <laughs> um, but he was delightful. He's awesome. And, and he had a different take on the king than, than Jonathan Groff did. And I always appreciate that because it's a tiny role. It gets the biggest laughs. It gets the first laugh. I mean, he does the uh, turn your cell phones announcement off. And he makes a comment at the end that I'm not going to spoil for you, but it makes everyone laugh. And he was just great. I mean, you know, he steals the show. And then Angelica. I mean, that's did you know she's a David Diggs girlfriend? I did not. I mean, she's been with the show as an ensemble member for, I think, pretty much. Uh, maybe, I don't want to say from the beginning, but she's been with the show in different incarnations over the years. Yes. Talk about a power couple. But Satisfied, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in the theater when she sang Satisfied. She was amazing. In Washington, you can tell from the first line he says in the opening number, I leaned over to my roommate and said, oh, one last time's going to kill me. And it did. Yeah. Because he is a beautiful singer. Is that Isaiah Washington? Isaiah Johnson? Yeah. He was wonderful. And Michael Lavoyer, he's such a dreamboat. Um, It's just a completely different take. I mean, Lynn kind of plays Hamilton as like a little teddy bear, kind of like a puppy dog. And Michael Lavoyer, he starts it as very like kind of a scared kid. And then he develops into this very professional politician and this activist. It was just an amazing transformation to watch him go from 19 into his 40s. But on tier number one, (laughs) and by (laughs) himself, holy crap, Joshua Henry, I have no words. He, he was, the room where it happens, I I honestly never thought the applause was going to stop. Like it just wouldn't stop. He, he left everything on the stage and then has the audacity to come back on 10 seconds later, not even out of breath. I'm well, like, who do you think you are? Well, when you look at how ripped and in shape he is, uh, yeah, I guess I can kind of understand that because his arms oh are gigantic. His arms are like the size of my head and I have a, an abnormally large head. He was exquisite. Like he, I couldn't, I, his facial expression in the election of 1800 
when Hamilton chooses Jefferson. His transformation of shock to surprise, to anger, to recovery, to talk to Jefferson, and then just madness. The journey he takes just in his eyes <laughs> in that moment, I he's just, he took the show for me. So what I would say to you is in relation, this is the only time I've ever heard anyone sing it that wasn't the original cast. Sure. Right. So I was madly in love with it, and I think I enjoyed it a little bit more. And I've never said that about a tour. Never. Yeah, those are, that is high marks uh, coming from you who loves and knows that cast album uh, backwards and forwards. Uh, it's obviously not a surprise. There will be a second national tour. We don't know the cast of that yet. So if you do end up seeing the first national tour after it leads the Pantages, you will see a lot of these people. Not all of them. Uh, Joshua Henry will be departing. I don't know if he's staying through the entire Pantages run, but he is going to be playing Billy Bigelow in Carousel on Broadway this spring opposite Jesse Mueller. And so he will be leaving. But, I, I, you know, if you're in the Southern California area and you can afford the, I'm sure, astronomical ticket price, apparently, Jen says he's worth it. Um, so, okay, so you saw the show. Then, because you know somebody in the show's ensemble... You got to go on stage and meet the cast and one of Los Angeles's most famous athletes of all time. Well, he is, he plays Samuel Seabury, my friend Andrew Wojtal. He was also in the, um, the ensemble of Fiddler on the Roof last year. He was one of the dancers. He is playing Samuel Seabury in the touring cast. He's a, he didn't, he's not from LA. He's from uh, New England, but he went to school out here. And uh, my best friend became friends with him in college. So I got to know him, texted him a few days before and said, I'm coming to the show. He's like, oh, my God, come to the stage door. I want to see you. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, cool. Went backstage. When I walk backstage, everyone was singing happy birthday. And I was like, that's weird. I wonder if someone's birthday is, in, you know, someone in the cast, it's their birthday. And I looked and it was Kobe Bryant. <laughs> Just standing downstage center and the cast of Hamilton was singing happy birthday to him. You know, just a normal Wednesday in Los Angeles. Uh, so the cast was all taking pictures with him and everything. And um, it was really fun. And so I was talking to my friend Andrew and he was showing me the set and showing me the entrances and exits and all the costumes, the way it's laid out, the prop tables, the uh, everything, you know, that nerds would love and everyone else would be bored by. The theater had pretty much emptied out. I got to see Rory. I told them I was a big fan. I love Book of Mormon and that he was wonderful. And everyone had almost gone. So Michael Lavoie was still there. He introduced me to him. He was a gentle, gentle, wonderful soul. Uh, he was so, like, zen that he almost made me feel high. <laughs> like, just after seeing what he just did on the stage, and he was just so calm and peaceful. I'm like, how are you so zen? He goes, I have to be. It's the only way I can balance it. I'm like, Okay. So that was all I got to see. And then we were leaving and I was telling Andrew, I said, Joshua Henry was my favorite. And he's like, I'm sorry that we missed him. So we were walking down. We avoided the stage door because there's like a mile of fans outside yeah, and they have a secret course. exit that they can get out and go across the street and nobody notices them. Like literally, if you just cross over the street and go down the other side, no one notices them. And we walked down the street and we were saying goodbye and we turned around and Joshua Henry was standing there waiting to cross the street. <laughs> so Andrew said hello and introduced us and everything. And I was shaking because I'm a nerd and showed him my tattoo. And he was like, oh, that's really cool. And they started talking and I just turned into this <laughs> 12-year-old Beatles fangirl. 
and they were just having a conversation like two normal human beings. And every once in a while, I would just like poke my head around and be like, uh, the, the rumor it happens was really good. And then just disappear again. And they just look at me and keep talking. And then I would lean back and be like, I mean, I was like shaking and then lean back. And I did it for like four times. And finally, my roommate grabbed my arm and pulled me and was like, can you please chill? <laughs> like, I just could not control myself around this guy. He was just so good. Well, and what's so weird about that, Jen, is that you've been around celebrities before you've got friends who are on tv shows you've got friends who are you know in you know theater stuff and movies so it's not like you are somebody who has not been around celebrities before but obviously this was a different level for you personally no i have no chill when it comes to theater stars because Hmm. i don't know i think i look at athletes and i think i look at movie actors and tv actors like you know good on you like i really like your stuff this is cool but i look at theater and i know what it takes because i've been there and for them to be at this level and to do it every night i'm just like in in awe and especially him who was my absolute favorite and he was just like in a tank top and jeans walking home after a show like he didn't just burn the theater down like i was like this is just a normal night it was bizarre And then the last interaction I had was I went to my car in the parking garage and I was pulling out and someone uh, like put their hand up to stop so they could cross in front of me. And it was Isaiah Johnson. (laughs) So he crossed in front of me. Here comes the general. George Washington. Yeah, literally. And so I turned around the corner and he was walking to his car and I rolled my window down and I said, George Washington, I love you. And he started laughing so hard. He bent over and he just raised his hand and a thumbs up. I'm like, I'm such a freaking nerd. I hate myself. Well, you know what, though? These, these are, those are experiences that you'll never forget. You are such a fan of this show. Uh, um, that, there's nothing wrong with geeking out about things. I think, you know, that's there's so much cynicism in not just the world in general, but obviously, but in, in entertainment as well, because it is a business. And for those of us that, well, we aren't professional performers, you have more performing experience than I do, but we work tangential to these people who are celebrities on a daily basis, more or less. Um, so we understand that it's a business, it's their job, but I think it's okay to get excited about things. There's nothing wrong with being really geeked out to see somebody that you love their work. I, I think that's cool. And I, I appreciate the fact that you were able to do that. And, and it actually makes me even more excited for you than I already was that you got to see it and have all those experiences. So I'm glad that you enjoyed it as much as you did. The last thing I just want to say is, um, the first time I saw it, it was like, you know, the emotions of seeing it so much, you're just, you miss so much because you're just trying to focus and try and take it in. So being able to sit back this time and just kind of notice all the things I missed, I was really paying attention to the choreography a lot because my friend Andrew is an amazing dancer and that's how I got to know him. So I was watching the dancing, but also all the things that are going on in the background while the songs are happening and uh, up on the second level as people are watching and people are participating in the scenes, but they're not in the scenes. They're just, but it's still important. And just kind of um, observing the staging and the lighting and the choreography and and the way the people walked and, you know, noticing the things that Lynn pointed out, like Hamilton always walks in a, in a curve and, and Burr always walks in straight lines because that's how they think. And it was so fun seeing it a second time because you pick up all the things that you miss when you're over emotional the first time. So maybe that's why I liked it a little bit more because I kind of was able to take it in and really understand what I was seeing. Yeah. 
we'll get back to some hints because I am going to be seeing it for the first time in November. I'm going to get back to that. But before that, Jen, I know you were currently writing an article about Hamilton. Do you want to give people a sneak peek as to what that article is about? I don't, you don't need to give too much of a way because it's not published yet, but uh, do you want to give people an idea as to what you've been thinking about lately? I wanted to write kind of a guide on how to deal with someone like me in your life. <laughs> if you're dating someone who's a, a, fam, a Hamill fanatic or you're friends with someone or you work with someone. And I, I noticed at work when I talk about Hamilton, some people's eyes glaze over or, um, and even just at the show when I like see girls like freaking out and their poor boyfriends are sitting next to them. Like, I know she loves this, so I'm just going to smile. And so there's just a few tips I wanted to hand out, like what to expect and um, how to deal with it and when to keep your mouth shut kind of thing. All right. So when that article comes out, Jen will obviously let you know on the Twitter at Eponine Q and we'll let you know at SLIP podcast as well. But okay, Jen, switching from the left coast over to the east coast, I'm going to be seeing uh, Hamilton when I go to New York this November. I've got tickets for, uh, I believe it's Thursday, November 9th. So I guess my biggest question is, what do I need to watch for? I know the cast recording. I've been listening to it a lot lately. Now that I know that I'm going to be able to see it, I want to make sure I'm really familiar with it so I don't miss anything. But what do I need to watch for to fully appreciate, without spoiling anything, to fully kind of appreciate the experience of seeing it for the first time? Well, I think it is overwhelming. I mean, I know you're not a fanatic like I am, but I know it can be overwhelming to see, you know, everyone's really excited. Uh, one of the things I warn about in the article is that some people do sing along, some people do the choreography, and the first <sighs> advice would be to ignore them because all they want is attention. All they want is to let you know that they've seen it multiple times. Like, no one cares. So focus on the stage despite the audience unwarranted interaction. Um, like I said, the people in the background are important. So if there's a scene going on, you know, sometimes it's either it's Jefferson kind of plotting his next move or it's, you know, one of the ensemble people following Hamilton around for a certain reason, or there's just every single person on stage is there for a reason. They're not just there to be in a crowd scene. The choreography, I watched a little special with Andy Blankenbuehler, how he broke down some of the choreography. Every single beat has about six moves in it, and they all wow. mean something. So especially in New Yorktown, My Shot, or um, what's the other one, Room Where It Happens, those try and take in as many of the different aspects of the dancing as possible because there's so much going on. And I learned that The Room Where It Happens is a song sung three times from three different perspectives. So, like, uh, the same scene is happening, but the stage turns three different ways. And you get, and it's just, uh, The Room Where It Happens in One Last Time blew me away when I saw it live. It didn't do, they didn't do anything for me really listening to it, but seeing it live, were, those were the two that really just broke me. So, I'm very excited for you to see it. I'm scared because I know you are a critic and you're yes. always going to find something to pick at. So it'll take all my energy to not stab you through the Skype. But <laughs> I'm also excited for to talk about things with you that I've tried not to talk about because yeah. I don't want them spoiled. So I, you know, have mixed feelings about yeah. it. Well, you're right. I, 
I've reviewed uh, hundreds of theater productions in my life, but I don't really do that much anymore. I kind of am just a, a backup here in Orlando because I don't do it uh, full time anymore. So I feel like when I've seen shows, I've actually started to slowly get out of the habit of doing that. So I think by the time November comes around that I think I will be able to appreciate it just as a fan. Now, you know, as well as I do, we've both directed plenty of shows in our time. So there's always part of your brain that thinks like a director, like, oh, okay, I see why they did that. Uh, I'm not sure why they did that. So I think that's part of it. But I think that's also part of appreciating a work of art. But um, I'm just really excited to see it. I mean, this is something that has, for someone like me who does work, even though I'm, you know, a thousand miles away, I work in Broadway every day. And it's the biggest thing that's hit Broadway in 15 years. I mean, you know, I mean, since the producers, maybe since Hairspray, maybe, but I think it's bigger than both of those. So I'm excited to actually to be able to experience it firsthand. And I've been getting more into the album just so I, you know, familiarize myself with it. I'm also seeing uh, the revival of Once on This Island. So I've been listening to that original cast recording as well. But I'm just excited. I mean, the cast that's up there now is not the original cast, obviously, but there's some people that I'm really a big fan of. The uh, original In the Heights star Mandy Gonzalez is playing Angelica. Tony winner James Monroe Eichelhardt is playing the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson. He was involved with the show very early on. He's a member of Lynn's Freestyle Love Supreme, uh, but he was, you know, winning a Tony as the genie in Aladdin when it first started doing its productions. Um, but he's in it now. And then I'm actually going to be interviewing the current Aaron Burr Tony nominee Daniel Breaker the day after I see the show. He's a Tony nominee for Passing Strange. He was also the donkey in Shrek the Musical and he's been a part of Book of Mormon I mean, forever. I mean, he wasn't in the original company, but he's been with the show uh, either on Broadway or whatever for, I mean, pretty much three straight years, I think. He was from um, February of 2014 through February of 2017 before he left to go to the Chicago company to play Aaron Burr. So I'm just excited because these are, it's the most important thing in Broadway with people that I really love, and I'm excited to finally see it. Jen, you also know, though, that who's playing King George III is Tony nominee Ewan Morton. So this kind of transitions us maybe into our next uh, topic, but you know who his son is, right? I do not. You do not know who Ewan Morton's son is. Oh. I know you. I've seen Ewan, Ewan Morton on Broadway in um, Taboo. Taboo. Yes, he was. He played Boy George in Taboo. He was a Tony nominee for that. He's done some Shakespeare stuff. He was in Sondheim on Sondheim. His son. I believe he did Hedwig in part of the did, tour, too. He did Hedwig for the tour that was not California based. Um, he just got done with that, went straight in to, um, to Hamilton as King George III. His son is Ian Armitage. Um, also known as Ian Loves Theater. Oh, did you not I, know that? Young Sheldon. I did not know that. Yes. His son will be playing Young Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory spinoff. So Lynn and Ewan did a little video to Ian, who is out in California, I assume, shooting, uh, telling him how proud, he, how proud they are of him. Uh, Ian's been a huge uh, fan of Hamilton since the very beginning. And he's just this precocious little kid who always wears bow ties. So, um you know, either way. So there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm super excited to see Hamilton on Broadway and just excited to be in New York. It's been a, 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 a more than a year since I've been there. So I'm excited to get up there and see it. And I'm so excited to talk to you after I see the show so we can compare notes and kind of dive into it even more sometime in December, probably. One last time. Relax, have a drink with me. One last time. Let's take a break tonight And then we'll teach him how to say goodbye To say goodbye You and I 
to talk about neutrality. Sure. With Britain and France on the verge of war, is this the best I time? I want the war against partisan fighting. What? Pick up a pen, start writing. I want to talk about what I have All right, so we kind of teased some side projects. The one we want to talk about the most, Jen, is something that's a little different. We haven't really discussed our opinions on this yet at all. But what it is, it's a three-part musical podcast from the company called Two Up. That is the podcast production company that I first became aware of a couple years ago when they did a podcast called Limetown. It was the first really narrative fiction podcast that I got into. And Jen, you know, I like those more than you do. You tend to stick with more of the true crime stuff and the, the comedy stuff. This is one of the first ones, if not the first one that I got into, but they really haven't done anything since. They've been developing Limetown as a um, I think at first it was going to be a TV show. Now I think it might be a movie and they're doing like a prequel book. So they really haven't done anything. But in July, they started releasing episodes of a three-part musical called 36 Questions. Now it's not written by the same people that wrote Limetown. It's written by Chris Littler and Ellen Winter. It's produced by the guys who did Limetown, Zach Akers and Skip Bronke. And it just kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't really wasn't expecting it, but 36 Questions is a two-person musical and it stars Tony Nominee, who you've previously mentioned, Jonathan Groff, and Jesse Shelton, who's most recently seen off-Broadway in the musical Hades Town, which is apparently going to have a pre-Broadway run in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada this fall before hopefully trying to find a theater in New York in the spring or next fall. So Jen, this show is is different. It's unique. It's not like any musical that you see too often on stage, let alone in podcast form. But what they do is they are about an hour, 45 minute episodes each. You know, so it's a full length musical. They split them up into three sequential things. It's about a married couple who are on the rocks on the brink of divorce. And the wife brings up the idea of recreating their first date where they read these 36 questions and answered them, which I guess is a real thing. It's not something that I'm familiar with, but it's supposed to instantly bond people to each other. And man, I've got a lot of feelings about this thing. So Jen, I'll, I'll let you start. What did you think of 36 Questions as a whole, as a musical? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I go I go back and forth so much from hating it to appreciating it to respect. I, I just don't know how I feel I am about so it. glad you I don't, said that. I don't know if it should have been 10 episodes or if it shouldn't have happened at all. Um, I don't. Like you said, I don't listen to fictional or narrative or acted podcasts at all. So this is brand new for me. So I'm trying to get used to that as it is. I listen to, you know, true crime and, and comedy and, you know, this is brand new. I listen to it because you told me about it and Jonathan Groff, you know, and I just don't – I. I cannot give you – I can't answer that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the way I think about it is is I loved everything about this podcast, this whole musical. I loved everything about it except for the music, <laughs> which is not good when it's a musical. Like I li- music? And I liked, I liked the idea behind the music. I just didn't like the music. I mean it's kind of like um, kind of like a combination of, I don't know, like – once and and spring awakening and kind of thrown into a blender and i just i don't know i i didn't like the music i thought jesse shelton who played uh well judith for you'll understand if you listen to it why i'm not sure what to call her um who played judith the wife 
I thought she was great. She was super interesting. Groff is obviously fantastic. He's great. Well acted. The The story was compelling. I almost wish that they'd just done it as a radio play, though, rather than a musical. Yeah, I agree with that because I remember, first of all, they, they stopped it a few times with for commercials, which don't even get me started on how weird that was. But also, I remember one of the commercials was like, if you'd like to download the, the cast record, I'm like, who would do that? Like, it's just so unpleasant. And I feel like you're right. If it had just been a, a radio play, it would have been interesting because I felt, and I never feel this way about musicals, but it was almost like the music was taking away from the story. Yeah, a lot of the songs were amelodic and there was no hook. There was no, you know, not to kind of beat the dead Sondheim thing where everyone says, oh, there's no melody, there's no music or rhythm or whatever to Sondheim's music. But like, there was literally nothing here. I mean, it was not a single song that I remembered 10 seconds after they were over. And and that's okay, but there has to be something compelling about the music to make a musical work. That's why you make it a musical and not a play. Um, I thought that the story was really, really interesting. I loved the fact that there were twists and turns in there. I loved the format, the way they did it with kind of uh, making it that Judith, the character played by Jesse Shelton, had this kind of obsessed need to chronicle everything. So that's how they explained the fact that these were all being done by voice memo, like on her phone. And I loved kind of the, the, the format that they did and the character turns. It just, I was... I was disappointed. Like, you know that I've talked about doing more fiction things on podcasts with Broadway radio for a while now, writing a musical for a podcast or something. And, and it just, man, I I wanted this to be great. And it was just not. Did. And the other thing was, is it felt very rushed, you know, like the first two episodes was, was a few months and then they, past like 10 years or something in or five years in the yeah. second or the third episode. Spoiler. And alert. because it was so rushed and I'm not going to, you know, spoil the plot, but well, maybe I am a little, <laughs> but <laughs> there was nothing that I learned in these episodes that would make me think he would ever have any desire to see this woman again, the way they set it up and the way the kind of person she was. I mean, we've all had bad relationships in the past, but you know, we leave them in the past and I, if there was something there, I never got why he would ever go back and, and explore it again. It just, it didn't resonate with me at all. And I was very turned off in the last scene of the of the third episode. Yeah. And I think what they could have done maybe a little differently is rather than starting after all of the crap that had happened in their relationship, maybe give us at least a little sliver of what their relationship was like before the shit hit the fan. If they had given us a little bit of that and then fast forwarded to after all the stuff had happened, not revealing what had happened, but to have shown us a little bit of what the relationship was like when it was good might have grounded Jonathan Groff's character, Jace, a little bit more to understand why he kept allowing her into his life after all the terrible things that she did. Right. Because like we never saw the actual love. It was just like, we had to just accept that it had been there, but there was nothing for us to go off of like, well, their love was so strong. I understand, but it was just like, we just jumped right into the madness and that's how we knew them both. So, and one of the things with, with musicals, especially, but any type of theater is the, the rule is always to show, not tell. And we got a lot of telling in this. Now, obviously, that's part and parcel with it being a podcast, but 
there's ways that you can show things and create the dynamics that need to be there for it to be sympathetic moving forward. It just, they just told way too much than they needed to. Yeah. So I don't know how I feel. I mean, it's hard to adjust. Like I said, I don't listen to fiction podcasts at all. So it's hard for me to adjust having to pay attention and listen so that I can figure out plot points because, you know, I'm used to listening to what I listen to where you can tune out for a few seconds and you're not completely lost. And so it took a while to adjust for that. But also, um, I just, there was nothing keeping me listening except for the fact that we were going to talk about it. (laughs) Well, and Jonathan Groff's character has a pet duck. So why wouldn't that make perfect sense? Which visually that would have been cool, but just hearing about it, I don't know. And I don't want to put it down because I feel like it's a jumping off point. Like it's a good idea and it's a good thing to pursue, but I'm not sure the first venture was, (laughs) it's something I never need to hear again. I completely agree. Since we're talking about side projects of Hamilton folks, uh, Jen, we've mentioned um, a couple of the other things. Um, at the top of the show, and one is, I can't remember what one of them was. One was going to be David Diggs's new show that he's a, uh, an executive producer on on ABC, but what was the other one you mentioned? Jordan Fisher on Dancing with the Stars. Right, Jordan Fisher, who was not a member of the original Broadway cast of Hamilton, but he came in as uh, John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton during the Broadway run. He was also one of the T-Birds in Grease Live that was directed by Tommy Kale in 2016. So he's got a lot of connections with these folks. Uh, but he's going to be on Dancing with the Stars along with one of the Property Brothers. I don't remember which one because I don't know which is which. And, um, and both uh, Nick Lachey and his wife Vanessa um, are going to be on there as well. I, I just feel like when you get a boy band member and and a musical theater actor, obviously Jordan Fisher is pop star as well, I guess. Not my area of expertise, but it seems like those are a little unfair on Dancing with the Stars. They always seem to win. I, I, you know, that, that seems a little cheating to me. I agree. And I thought that when I heard um, Alfonso Ribeiro. <laughs> he was, I, we might have talked about this before, but he was literally the star of a musical on Broadway yeah. called The Tap Dance uh-huh. Kid. He's, huh? He was literally the tap dance kid. That, that seems. Or, um, yeah. Did you just did you mention Simone Biles? No, I didn't. But yeah, gymnast Simone Biles didn't win. Um, Lori Hernandez won. Um, you know, Lori Hernandez. Yeah, yeah. But like going back to like Christy Yamaguchi. Yeah. And they're playing up against like NFL quarterbacks. Well, who do you think's going to win? The star of Hamilton or the quarterback for the Giants? <laughs> or Bill Nye, the science guy or, you know, people like that. Like it's just it's not fair. Which I'm fine with, you know, it just again points out like, I- I'm glad that you're trying this, but you know, like, let it, let us handle this part. You go throw the football. Well, that, that being said, NFL players have done really well. Like there's been multiple ones. Heinz Ward comes to mind and a couple, of, and I don't watch the show, but I mean, there's been athletes who have, who have won and you know, as well as anybody that to be a professional athlete, you've got to be really coordinated you've got to be able to take direction and coaching same things that have to happen if you're going to be a dancer as well so i can understand that it's the ones it just seems like those kind of people when you're putting them up against like sitcom actors it just seems a little unfair even though they probably have some dance training it just seems unfair that people who are literally professional dancers in one way or another are going up against people who aren't but oh well that's why i stick to so you think you can dance because that's such a better show I'd also like to send a shout out to the quarterback for the Washington racist team. 
who uh, likes to rap Hamilton while he's practicing. Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins. Nice. <laughs> okay. I didn't know the Washington racist team. I like that. That's that's well done. Yeah, Kirk Cousins, Michigan State uh, alum, now throwing to former Ohio State quarterback Terrell Pryor Sr. Uh, so uh, go racists. Uh, anyway, so then we've also got, I mentioned David Diggs. He is one of the executive producers on a new ABC sitcom called The Mayor, which honestly, I'm so disappointed he's not starring in uh, because it seems perfect for him. They are in, I believe, the Detroit area is where it's set. And as a joke, a local rapper decides that he is going to run a write-in campaign to be this small town's mayor. And he wins. <laughs> and so he has to become the city's mayor. It's uh, just ridiculous. And when I first heard it, I was like, well, that's perfect. David's going to be awesome in that. And then I said, oh, he's not actually in it. He is just producing it. Um, it is co-starring... The enamorate Yvette Nicole Brown, who I adore. <laughs> yes. Yvette Nicole Brown is playing the, the mayor's mother. His, I guess, chief of staff who comes over from the campaign that lost is played by Leah Michelle. You know, seems interesting. Uh, you know, David Diggs had a, had a recurring role on Blackish. Last season, as Tracy Ellis Ross's brother, which makes perfect sense when you see their hairs next to each other. So, uh, yeah, good for him doing other things and uh, you know, kind of venturing out. One thing, I came out here for one thing, and that little bitty one thing was to forget about you. But I guess I've learned something That there's never really one thing Cause pretty quickly one thing Evolves into two or three or more For example, see the light in the hallway? It was always flickering Ever since I was little It was always flickering After three days here It was unbearable My list grew to fix the light bulb and one forget about you all right jen we are going to close the episode as we normally do with a little show and tell where we auditorily show people something and then tell them why we love it why don't i go first this is a radio play that came from my friends over at the podcast broad wasted jen are you familiar with broad wasted i am not okay this is a podcast um that is hosted by uh, Kevin Jager, Brian Plofsky, and Kimberly Cooper, who recently got married to Jay Schmidt. So she is now Kimmy Schmidt. And anyway, so they host this podcast on a weekly basis. They talk to a Broadway star while getting wasted. They just sit around and drink and talk about stuff. It's goofy. It's funny. They play games on the show. It's really fun. But then... On August 15th, they premiered the first episode of Broad Wasted Away, a three-part radio play, and I put three in quotation marks, um, and it has just an absurd cast. We've mentioned James Monroe Iglehart. He is in it. Also, Michael, Server Michael Serverus is in it. He is absolutely goofy. I mentioned Jeremy Jordan. He's in it. Tony nominee Mike Feist from Dear Evan Hansen's in it. Max Crum, the winner of Greasier, the one that I want, is in it. The Queen, Leslie Margarita, is in it. Antoine L. Smith, who's currently in Miss Saigon on Broadway. Haley Podshoon, who's in uh, Hello, Dolly. Hannah Ellis from Bright Star plays a 
big part in, and there's more, including my friends Andrew Bradis, uh, annoying actor friend, and Robbie Rizell. It's got a great cast. It's super fun. I described it when I was writing about it on Broadway World as like film noir with jazz hands. It's kind of this old timey detective story set around a Broadway plot. And if you listen to Broadway, did you know they are very big fans of musical theater puns? So it is overrun with puns. Um, there are so many. They've released the first three episodes. When I say first three episodes, you're like, well, it's a three-part radio play. It's broad-waisted, and nothing makes sense. So there will be a, uh, a final episode. It's actually episode three, part two, kind of going, uh, you know, the whole Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games thing there. Um, that'll be released. Uh, this episode is going to come out on Labor Day, so it'll come out tomorrow. So de- definitely make sure to subscribe to Broad-waisted. That's B-R-O- A-D-W-A-Y-S-T-E-D. It's very funny. And what's cool about it is is there's a lot of jokes that relate to the normal episodes of Broadwasted, but you don't have to have been a listener to the show to fully understand what's going on. You you might not get all of the jokes, but there's plenty of other things that made me laugh out loud. Jeremy Jordan delivers a line. I just, I literally almost swerved my car off the street when I was uh, listening to it because it was just really, really funny and just so weird. And to hear Michael Cerverus, who's very stoic and, you know, he was um, in Assassins on Broadway and, and Fun Home on Broadway, but then he also always plays these weird characters on TV. Tommy. And, yeah, Tommy. He was Tommy in the Who's Tommy. He was on um, Fringe as, what was it called? The Watcher or The Observer or whatever on the show Fringe. He's now on the TV show The Tick um, on Amazon as one of the bad guys. It, he said he was very funny and weird. Um, so I loved it. So um, let me give you a little bit of a, a clip here from Broadway Wasted Away. I didn't have to turn around when I heard the door open. I heard the click of those high, high heels, and I thought, on a night like this, a woman like that would have nowhere to go but here. I'd be the only one still open at any rate. The only private eye, not afraid of the coming storm. But it's here now, and I've already had too much of my life washed away. What's a little more rain? You've got to help me. You're my only hope. I have nowhere else to go. Save it, honey. I've heard this song and dance before. I've heard this unexpected song. So it is you! I spun around to face her. Whoever this broad was had the nerve to pretend that she knew me. But as I turned around, I saw her, standing there. That face. Brian from Broad Wasted! No one said that name to me in a long time. What? Brian? No, Brian. Brian's still my name. I didn't change it. I meant... Broad Wasted? I reached for the bottle of tequila and poured myself a healthy glass. This dame was giving me the urge for some courage, but this was the strongest stuff I had. What can I do for you, toots? I'm actually here because of Broadwasted. Listen, lady. It's Ellis, friend of the show, Hannah Ellis. Well, you gotta go, sweetheart. All right. So that's mine. My friends over at Broadway's The Way. I interviewed the guy who wrote it, Kevin Jager, who's 
um, one of the hosts. Um, I interviewed him on Broadway radios today on Broadway a week or so ago. So I'll put a link to that in there as well if you want to hear him talking about what it was like to put this together. And then for each of the episodes on Broadway World, we are publishing some behind-the-scenes uh, Easter eggs and some behind-the-scenes stories about the recording. Another person who is part of the cast of this is Lily Cooper. Her father is Tony winner Chuck Cooper. Um, who is currently on Broadway in The Prince of Broadway. But Lily Cooper is playing Sandy Cheeks in the upcoming original Broadway production of SpongeBob SquarePants. Um, she also was an original cast member of Spring Awakening. So she's in there as well. Lots of super fun people. So if you're so inclined to laugh and love Broadway, definitely check out Broad Wasted Away. All right, Jen, what do you have for show and tell? Well, uh, coincidentally, I am also going to recommend podcasts. Oh, very nice. <laughs> um, one of my favorite podcasts is done by comedian Jimmy Pardo, and it's called Never Not Funny. Mm. It's a long listen. Each episode is about two hours, but he's one of my favorite comedians. I just really appreciate his sense of humor. He's also a Broadway fanatic. Like, he really? is obsessed with Broadway. And one of his uh, favorite recurring guests on his podcast is Anthony Rapp, who introduced him to his new favorite show called Hamilton. <laughs> so Jimmy Jimmy talks about Hamilton all the time, and his son's obsessed with it, and his wife's obsessed with it. Well, this past week, their guest was Rory O'Malley, and he was really excited to interview him. And uh, it was the first time I really heard Rory O'Malley tell his story. Oh, wow. And it was very interesting his journey to Broadway, especially to playing King George and Hamilton um, when he got cast a week after his heartbreaking news that his show uh, Nerds, Nerds mm-hmm. was not going to be produced on Broadway. Um, it's a fascinating interview. I really learned a lot about him. Um, got a little emotional at times because he's very honest and seems like a really cool guy and uh, talks about how his husband always tries to keep him in check on Instagram, like trolling him, saying that Jonathan Groff was better. And uh, He's just an enjoyable guy. But also it made me learn about his podcast. He does a podcast called Living the Dream and where he interviews Broadway stars. And since he's in L.A. now, he's kind of going one by one and interviewing the new L.A. uh, Hamilton cast. He's interviewed Isaiah Johnson and Soleil Pfeiffer and Joshua Henry. And um, it's just really interesting to hear him interview being part of the cast as uh, interviewing Broadway people. So I would definitely recommend his episode on Jimmy Pardo, which is Never Not Funny. That's the podcast. But also his podcast, Living the Dream with Rory O'Malley, because he has some really great interviews with today's Broadway stars. And, you know, it's really interesting, that story about nerds, uh, because that was a show that was supposed to come to Broadway actually on April 1st of 2016. They were already in rehearsals for the show, um, had a really good cast, including my friend Patty Murin who was supposed to be in that that show. So after Nerds gets canceled, Rory O'Malley gets cast in the Broadway production of Hamilton. Then he goes on tour with it. And then like a month or so after he gets cast originally, word comes out that Patty Murin was cast as Princess Anna in the stage version of Frozen, which she is currently doing in the pre-Broadway run in Denver. She will come with the show to New York this spring. So it's just so interesting. And and she's talked about this on her podcast on Broadway Radio a little bit. She's not really, at that point, she wasn't really allowed to talk about Frozen because it was, you know, NDAs and all that stuff. But just talking about how this business can go from really excited, we're going to Broadway, to 
what? The, there's not enough money. We're already in rehearsals. The show's canceled to, holy crap, I have the opportunity of a lifetime. So it really, I mean, I, I could never be an actor just because of those ups and downs. I like things steady, Jen. Uh, but to just to know about these, the, the life that they have to lead is, Man, it's, it's, it's bonkers at the ups and downs and the emotional roller coasters, um, that I know is often part of the stuff that Rory talks about in his podcast. And he does go into that a lot. And he said it's a really good lesson of, um, when you get your heart broken and, and sometimes you don't understand why right away, but there's always a why. His just happened to come a week later because <laughs> his agent called and said, you need to come back to New York. And he said, no way. My heart was just broken. He said, they want you for the King. And he said, I'm at LAX. (laughs) So it's a great interview. Like uh, Jimmy Pardo is hilarious. He's such a great comedian and they play off each other very well. So even there's, there's some like really touching stories. It's also super funny. So I highly recommend that episode. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this first episode of the season of Broadway World Sound Like a Pop podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com. You can also get us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Sound Like a Pop. You can also follow us on Twitter. Jen is at Ebony and Q. I'm at BWW Matt. And the show itself is at SLIP Podcast. Also, please make sure you rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And we will be back soon to do our annual Wish, Want, and Will episode about the Emmys. Jen, this is a weird Emmy season, so I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Until next time, we'll see you around the Broadway world. Isaiah Johnson is George Washington. Rory McIlroy is... uh, No, not Rory McIlroy. Well, that'd be something to see Rory McIlroy as the king. Hey, you never know. Could be. Um... I'm so jealous you get to see James Englehart. Englehart. <laughs> Whatever. I'm so jealous. Like, I heard that he was on the Hamilcast and did an interview, and I think I've listened to that episode three times. He's just so engaging and yeah. so fun. He's going to tear Jefferson up. Yeah.